0: to be constantly focused on the fact that we are guardians of the system that mm. everybody else depends on mm. or managing their relationships in their families, at work, in their communities, immigration, their relationships with government. It's the, it's the stuff of daily life. And we have created that. We stand guardian over it and we can't be asking the question what is best for lawyers
1: Hello and welcome once again to Jumping Off the Ivory Tower with Prof Julie Mack. My name is Dana Cornwall and I'm the Project Manager at the National Self-Represented Litigants Project.
2: And I'm Julie McFarlane, the Director of the National Self-Represented Litigants Project.
1: Uh, Dana, I have to
2: just mention, I don't remember seeing you curtsy when you came in just now. (laughs) I mean, now that I have the Order of Canada, you know there's a new office rule about curtsying. I mean, I'm not sure why you're laughing. This is a very serious matter.
1: I put this to all our listeners. Listen to what I have to deal with now. (laughs) She's just completely gone to her head. (laughs) I don't know what we're going to (laughs) do.
2: Well, maybe bringing me down to earth a little bit, um, today's interview is with a real superstar in the Access to Justice universe. I've wanted to interview Gillian Hadfield For the podcast for some time now and when she moved back to the U of T last summer after a number of years where she'd been in the U.S. at the University of Southern California, uh, we got in touch and we started talking about doing this interview and her work on Access to Justice, as I'm sure many listeners know, is very impressive and perhaps some of you are following her on Twitter and if you're not, I recommend that you do so.
1: So Jillian is now the inaugural Schwartz-Reisman Chair in Technology and Society, Professor of Law and Professor of Strategic Management at the University of Toronto. Hey, my title is not that long. I know, that's really impressive for somebody to have a longer title than you. Uh, One of uh, Jillian's major contributions to the access to justice movement is as a legal economist uh, who can put us straight on a couple of things, including the fantasy that there can ever be enough legal aid in the world to pay for legal representation for everyone who cannot afford it. Um, Instead, the problem of access to expert representation needs to be tackled in other ways, including deregulation and the development of new expert roles that are more affordable than lawyers have become.
2: So let's listen to Jillian.
3: Hello, Julian. It's Julie McFarlane. Can we start by talking about one of the real themes of the work that you've done? And obviously, this is really expanded in your book, Rules for a Flat World, which we're going to put up on the podcast website with all the other information about this interview. You know, I'm so struck by how well and how frankly you talk both in the book and in, you know, your tweets. <laughs> I love you following you <laughs> on Twitter uh, about how out of touch the legal system has become to people's real needs. You know, I, I think you know that you were my favorite tweet of 2018 when you wrote, it's really time to admit that we've allowed tremendously complex legal processes to develop that exploit the fact that the vast majority of people cannot manage tremendously complex legal processes. And I have to say, I love every word of that tweet. Can I i start by asking you, and I realize that this is a mega question, but could you say something about how why have we ended up in this mess with this tremendously complex process that the vast majority of people simply cannot manage?
0: My short answer to that is that we have developed a legal profession. That is mm. extremely close. We've developed, you know, the the concept of the practice of law as something that can only be engaged in by members of a profession that has yes. a very, you know, sing- generally we know this in North America now, a, a single track entry into the profession, you know, yes. a single type of education, a single type of testing. But we call ethical rules a number of things that are really business model regulation. That then limits the extent to which we can have investment and we can have right. partners and collaborators who have other kinds of training. And, right. and at the end of the day, the key problem is that we are a community of lawyers all trained the same way, talking to each other and and developing our ideas about contracts and legislation, mm. constitutional law and immigration, all within this closed bubble. Yes. And it's that closed nature that we're not open to other ideas. We're not open to very much pressure and competition on how we should be responsive. It's a bit like epicycles, right? It's just like it's, a, it's this closed group talking to each other and we right. we write a bunch of stuff that maybe makes sense to us but doesn't make sense but to most people. Other into.
3: people. And, and maybe, you know, if I can just add one piece to that, we also don't value the views and opinions of people outside of that bubble. I mean, this is one of the things that we have really tried to advocate for at the project to look at the experiences of users and consumers of the system and take what they might say seriously. So I love that example in your book about the Goldcorp experiment. Mm -hmm. To me, that really symbolizes this whole idea of what happens when you get outside the bubble and start thinking about it differently. Could you just give a kind of, one-minute summary of that for people who haven't read your book yet? Because I think sure. it's such a great example.
0: Yes, it is. And it and it's symbolic of really where, you know, so much of what's happening in our new economy, the world we live in now, and yes. these are ideas about open innovation and yes. user responsiveness and, you know, collaborative, you know, users who, pr- who produce content. We have entire massive businesses now that are based on user-produced content, like Twitter, yes. for example. Yes, um, yes. And so the Goldcorp example is one that with the company that says okay we are there's we we own some territory on some land you know we're obviously we've done our geological studies and our experts have looked at it to identify where there might be gold deposits but they put that information out on the internet and they
3: said, mm-hmm. said
0: to the world and said you know if you've got ideas for us of where we might find gold in this territory so, uh right. we'll we'll with have to we'll be a Right, exactly, right. exactly. You don't need to be a geologist, and they found a great deal more gold than uh, through that process than they did through the use of their expert systems, so that there were ideas and approaches and things that we could find. Now, that's very concrete, right, finding gold in earth. You'd sort of imagine, well, yes. there's, clearly the mining experts are the best ones for that. So if now we're talking about something like, what would work for you in terms of Managing your family law dispute. What would work for you in terms of managing the risk of disagreements with your partner mm-hmm. when you're opening mm-hmm. up a beauty salon? Mm-hmm. Um,
3: mm-hmm. You know,
0: we're 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 not engaged in any of that. We you know maintain control of it and say, well, you know, we, we're the ones with the legal education. We know best. What works here? Yes, and, and and then you know you don't want to you don't want to discount the importance of legal expertise. No. Uh, that actually is important but it's we as members of the profession should be figuring out with our expertise okay now what works for people
3: right right and and including them in those conversations I mean you know yeah. the follow-up question to how do we get into this message how do we find our way out of it and from what you said about the profession you know at the moment we have a model that is absolutely closed to that kind of outside take stakeholder input so How do we change it, Jillian? I mean, you know, there are a lot of people wondering how the legal profession will ever be more willing to look outwardly and not simply, you know, protect turf.
0: Well, I'm an economist, and I think that one of the things we need to do is for the system to be under some competitive pressure so that people have choices about what kinds of systems they go into to find help. That's uh, we need to you know regulate markets big fan of regulated markets but you need some pressure there to say hey yes. you know, it just i need another option besides having to take 3 years to get a resolution of my small right. claims or spending right. $5000 on a lawyer to resolve my uncontested divorce and i think the where we will get pressure to be more responsive to the people who need law is when we start to behave more like the providers, the companies, and so on, who have to think, if we don't do well by our our users,
3: Uses, our yeah.
0: they will go somewhere else. And I would like to point to my smartphone here and say, this can do a lot of very complex things. And there's certainly a lot of pressure on one side to become more complicated to use. Hey, look at all these other new things we could do for you if we added these layers of menus. At Some point, consumers say, well, you know, it's become too hard for me. It's enough.
3: People. Yeah. Uh,
0: and I'm I got to go to so I'm going to go to this you know this other provider of smartphones because they figured out how to optimize. Oh, you know what I really need? I don't need a hundred menus or a hundred functions. I need a smaller number of functions, and this is easier, and it's a better optimal mix of what it can do and how hard it is to use. And right. we just don't have that.
3: Pressure. We don't have that data
0: now. You know, you mentioned. You know, of course, you're an economist, and I, you know,
3: first of all, I have to come, you know, right up front here. People who know me know this. I literally can't do arithmetic, so you're on another planet, as far as I'm concerned. But I remember. Jillian, one of the very first times I heard about your work was when you were testifying in New York at the chief judge's hearing from civil legal Legal services. This is so important for people to hear and to understand. You talked about the fact that it is no longer enough to say we'll simply provide through public legal assistance a lawyer to everyone who cannot afford one because, you know, basically that would bankrupt the state because the number of people now who fall between the eligibility for public assistance and people who are able and willing to pay for a lawyer for any kind of protracted period is so enormous. In other words, yes, we could think about more funding for public legal services, but it's not going to resolve this crisis. Is is that accurate? Is that an accurate summary? Because I think this is something a lot of people don't hear
0: yet. Yes, it, it is. The testimony in New York was started, I think, in 2012. And, yeah. And Chief, just, uh, Chief Judge uh, Jonathan Littman, who, who heard me yes. speak at Harvard, I believe, and asked me to come and testify. And it was uh, one of the first times I got up to just sort of say, Let, let's let's take seriously this response from the profession that the way we will manage the crisis mm-hmm. and access to justice is the pro bono work and legal right. aid. Right. Um, and so let's just do a little simple math. Um, so I'm going to do it with the U.S. Um, national numbers, because those are sort of more stuck in my brain at this point than individual states yes. or, or provinces, but what we know is that from our legal needs surveys and we all the over the world we 've done done these surveys now, and they pretty much all come back with the same roughly the same result, which is that fifty to sixty percent of the population uh, is facing at least one significant legal yes. issue at any given time. And actually, they often have two or three. So uh, let's let's take it and let's take it easy. Do the math easy. Let's say 50% have two. That means right. like 100% have one
4: yes. on average.
0: So you then just take the number of people living in the in the country. So what is it? 300 uh, million or so in, in the U.S. and multiply that and say what would it cost you to give mm. each of those people one hour of help. Mm-hmm. Uh, with their legal problem, and let's be conservative and say we can purchase that legal help for two hundred dollars an hour. Well, you're, you're pretty, you pretty end up pretty quickly things like numbers like sixty billion dollars to yes. uh, yeah. provide an hour of help. And then if you do it in pro bono, you know, it depends on how many lawyers are licensed, but it you know it varies between it's a couple of hundred to I think yeah. at one point they were for some places it was you know maybe four or five hundred hours of pro bono. Work a year to give one mm-hmm. hour of help to everybody. If yes. every lawyer did that, then we right. could provide one hour of help. Right. And it, it, right. it, but and of course,
3: one hour isn't enough anyway. We know of, that. Uh, of course, yes. yes. And
0: in, in some cases, people don't need an hour of legal help. But uh, you know, just to right. say, just to one hour. And and the point is just the. The exercise of, and so you mentioned at the start, you you don't do arithmetic, and it's not not what got right. you into law. That's true of most people in law; they don't come in. Um, they're interested in the math of it, and what we need to come to grips with is the massive scale of the need for uh, legal help, and yeah. that. You know, we we can't say legal aid, it, it it and pro bono. Of course, we need more legal aid. Of course, we should have more pro bono work. Those are all really important things, and we should. So they're not going to solve the problem. They cannot. It's like saying you're going to help. You know, like five or ten percent of the population can afford to go to doctors, and the rest will manage through volunteer time by those doctors and and charitable, you know, hospitals or something. Which you know we did over a hundred years ago. The numbers actually in the U.S., I'd like from the 1920s, were, it was all fee-for-service medicine, and 90% of the population didn't have medical services. Right. And that's where we are today in law.
3: Yes, and I think in addition that you know one of the things I certainly feel about the pro bono arguments, although like you, I agree that it would be tremendous if there was more tr- pro bono service provided to existing agencies. Is that you know we're talking about giving charity to ninety percent of the population, yeah. and that just doesn't feel the right way to think about something that really is a basic need. So, so moving on, Jillian. Again, we could talk for hours about this, but you know some of the things that would start to solve the crisis, and I know, and I think this might be, you know, a place that you might want to talk about this, that you've been working with Utah and some of their innovations. You know, one of the things that we're seeing here across Canada is an argument about who provides legal services and whether, in fact, it's possible to develop a model in which there are different tasks and different types of expertise that are provided at different levels of cost and different levels of qualification. But, of course, many people in the profession continue to maintain that they have to do it all and nobody else can do any of it, which is not the approach that's being taken in in Utah, for example. So would you say something about that?
0: And and I want to emphasize this is also, let's just start with the motherland. Yes. England England and Wales, Canada and the U.S. have had a much more aggressive stance with respect to what do you need to have have a licensed lawyer do and it's been everything from soup to nuts Uh, anything other than just general (laughs) legal information that's not tailored to your circumstances you need to have a licensed lawyer perform that Um, and in England and Wales they have never said much more sophistication well you can get legal advice and help with documents and, and lower level representation in fact from any source that you like um, now, of course, still it is the case that most of it is provided by licensed solicitors, but nonetheless, there's not this restriction, and so we ha- we already have a very aggressive restriction. in Absolutely, in the, in the US with, with
3: continuing you know efforts to sometimes seek custodial sentences for people who are seen to have practiced you know engaged in the unauthorized practice of law, yes. which I have to say still completely blows my mind. But yes, yes. let's look at yes. what could happen.
0: So I want to sort of emphasize: there's a lot that's just you know is it, just about allowing unions and banks and consumer groups and other kinds of providers, you know, experts in labor law to provide help to people who are dealing with na- trying to navigate a very complex legal environment. Now, the where we are today, I think, is, you know, we recognize that most of the things that we get in the world today, there is significant uh, cost reduction that we obtain from using technology and scale. Mm. And that is uh, something that we're being cut off from in law. And I've yeah. and also that I've done other back-of-the-envelope back, back of the envelope calculations, you know, the kind of law practice that helps ordinary people in small businesses, solo and small firm practices. Um, many of those end up doing only a few hours of, of billable and paid work a day because those lawyers spend the rest of their day trying to find and acquire clients, to bill them, to collect, to put in that type of... So there's a massive amount of inefficiency that could be taken down to to narrow the gap between what the client is paying and what the lawyer is actually earning on average per hour um, by... You know, just recruiting really basic elements of technology we totally take for granted, you know, websites that can connect you with lawyers and yep. chats that you could have with people who could provide expertise. We could be using data analysis to figure out what's the right answer for 80% of the of people yep. who ask the following question yep. or are trying yep. to figure out this procedure. Um, we have in our courts, uh, you know, it varies from location to location and field to field, but... You know, anywhere between, I think in downtown Toronto, it's like over 70% of people appearing in family court. And those that I knew, and, and the numbers in Utah where we did some, a, a quick study of this, 93% appearing in wow. civil and uh, family matters. Uh, 93% of cases had at least one person one. unrepresented. Yeah. Uh, New York, the numbers are over 90% of people in evictions and family cases un, unrepresented. And, so okay, so... <clears throat> Technology could help deliver help to those people, Um, you know, take a photograph of a legal document, get some basic information about what it is, what it means, what you can do, get some help when the judge says this, Um, you know, we could have those kinds of things. But the only way you can get that kind of technology and business models developed is if you allow investment by and participation by people who are not licensed lawyers. Right. So what we're doing in Utah is recognizing that what we have is a licensing scheme throughout the rest of North America where we only license individuals, we license lawyers. We don't have a regime for licensing organizations, corporations, and so on. It's not like, oh, just throw it open and let anybody do anything and don't offer consumers any protection against sham uh, advice or really low-quality um, exploitive advice and help, but rather create a regulatory regime that is appropriate to regulate for the actual risks that are faced yes. and has the capacity to protect consumers. Yes. But currently we weigh, in a sense, over-regulate that by saying the only people who can do it are licensed lawyers operating in small firms. That's really the only business yes. model they can adopt, um, which is both underprotective is and overprotective because yes. there are things lots of others could provide, lots of other business models could provide. It's also underprotective because we actually don't do the regulatory oversight. We say, okay, if you have this light, if you have this education, if you're licensed in this way, yes. you can provide. And one of the key things that we're um, hoping to implement in in Utah is, you know, a regulatory oversight that would then actually collect data and audit. The, yep. the results that are being produced, to identify where do we really have problems, where, where are there significant risks, and to determine what are the appropriate and reasonable regulatory interventions. The key premise of which is we need to compare the, the offered service with what the consumer, the user, the client will get yes. alternatively. And for most people, in most circumstances, they're getting nothing yeah.
3: That's right. And you know, one thing I, I have been so, so impressed about with Utah is that they're willing to test out an experiment and pilot some models. I think mm-hmm. they call it the regulatory sandbox. Yeah. You know, and if we could just get that attitude, you know, in other places that was that were willing to try some of these experiments. I mean, you know, we've been told that the sky will fall down in Ontario if we license paralegals to do family matters. I mean, th- there is not this sense that I feel like so much of your work is encouraging, and and mine too, that we have to start trying things out, and we have to start gathering data, and not just saying, you know, I feel that that wouldn't be a good idea, that that's that's a feeling, but, you know, we also need data. Let me just ask you about one last thing, Jillian, that you were quoted as saying right after, and an interview, right after you came back to Canada last year, after almost 20 years uh, in the U.S., the University of Southern California and also visiting at Harvard, Columbia and Stanford and now you're back at the U of T, which is great. And you you were said that your message for law students who obviously you teach about these immensely complicated legal regimes is it's not about you. <laughs> Could you say what you mean by that? Because that really intrigued me. Yes.
0: Yeah. So I, I think the point is that, that we need to be constantly focused on the fact that we are guardians of the system that mm. everybody else depends on
3: mm.
0: or managing their relationships in their families, at work, in their communities, immigration, their relationships with government. It's the, it's the stuff of daily life. And we have created that. We stand guardian over it. And you need to go out and look at what's happening for people out there. You need to be paying attention to to what's happening the ordi- ordinary person and remember that actually is not your clients mm-hmm. because ninety percent of the population is not a client,
3: right right, and they're not and going to be a client
0: and the, exactly
3: Thank you so much for this, Julian. It's been a great conversation, and I really hope we can do it again sometime soon.
0: Thank I hope you. so. It's been a real pleasure, thank you.
1: So it was such a great conversation with Jillian. She's so impressive. Yeah. Um, and we should give a little update because that was some some time ago that yes, you recorded, we recorded this conversation. It in the and there's been a little news recently about her.
2: Indeed. Jillian and um, also our colleague David Tanovich uh, are the co-recipients of this year's David Mundell Medal for Legal Writing, which Yay. is sometimes described as a Pulitzer Prize oh. for Legal Writing. And so many, many congratulations to Jillian and, of course, also to David.
1: Yes, indeed. Um, But going back to your conversation with her, uh, one of the things that stood out to me um, right off the top was she talked about how the legal profession is extremely closed Mm. um, and that there's this kind of this bubble and it's not very much open to new and other ideas and she gave the example of the gold corp yes which is so interesting i thought this was fascinating the idea of crowdsourcing yes in effect that's right i mean
2: she you know she puts her finger on it i think when she says we just talk to one another this is something Mm. of course we've been trying to change at nsrop by having people who use the system and people who work in the system talk to one another Uh, But her example, which I think is worth spending a moment on, of Goldcorp, was of a mining company who were considering where they might mine and having developed their own plans in a preliminary fashion, put information up on the website and invited other people with any and no qualifications to give them other suggestions from their own knowledge or maybe experience of these regions or maybe their technical expertise, who knows, to give them further suggestions on where they might find gold. And in fact, they found far more gold (laughs) via this process, as you put it, Dana, crowdsourcing, than through their own expert system. Mm. And I think that as Gillian told that story, and it's in her book, Rules for a Flat World, you know, it's a, it's a really good object lesson to us in the in the legal system that we need to listen to the input of users. And as we've said so often, those users have very important and valuable things to tell
1: us. Yeah. Another thing that stood out to me from your conversation with Jillian was this idea that the legal profession is somehow, at the same time, both over-regulated and under-regulated, yes. <laughs> which yes. is really interesting. Yes. And,
2: I mean, you know, Jillian is is part of this debate and has been for a while now that I think is starting to really gather pace around regulation issues in the legal profession. She referred to the fact, and I've heard many other people say this, uh, that the legal profession is overregulated for risk mm. in the sense that there are all these restrictions placed on who can inve- invest in law firms, who lawyers can be in business with. And in a sense we're losing other kinds of business models which is something that is actually the subject of uh, my forthcoming conversation on the podcast with Jordan Furlong yes, We'll be visiting good this one. again but at the same time as we overregulate for risk we also arguably underprotect the public mm-hmm. because we really have very little empirical data on which models of regulatory oversight actually protect people, protect people from poor services, enable people to make complaints that get followed through. Mm -hmm. And she talks about, because Gillian is involved in this, the experiments going on at the moment in Utah, which has become a little bit of a kind of cause celebre in the conversations around deregulation because Utah has established a task force of the Supreme Court of Utah in which they are doing what they call um, sandbox Mm -hmm. experiments. And they have invited in their first phase anybody who has an idea for an innovation in the delivery of legal services, and this includes paralegal Mm -hmm. delivery as well, And if they are accepted as part of the pilot, then part of being in that pilot is gathering empirical data. In other words, looking precisely at people's satisfaction, whether they have complaints, how they would bring those complaints, so that we actually have some data on which to base um, our concerns about protecting the public.
1: Yeah. Uh, And then the last thing that uh, I wanted to mention from your conversation and I think it's the thing that struck me the most uh, because this is something that we've kind of talked about ourselves at the project and that I've thought about a little bit. It's this idea of her message for students, which is that mm. it's not about you, um, that the system or the profession, I should say, is a service profession and that lawyers are guardians of the system, but they can't ask what is good for lawyers? They need to ask what is good for the public. What right. is good for clients? Right. And as you, as you reminded me. Um most of the public are actually not currently right clients, and that's yep. And kind as Gillian says,
2: you know, you've got to look at what the public wants, yep. and remember that ninety percent of that population, because of the affordability crisis, which she has also been mm-hmm. very authoritative in uh, on the issue of providing data on that, because of the affordability crisis, ninety percent of the population is not your client. But she's saying that's where future lawyers have got to look to think about how we will frame up services in the future to meet a much wider base of need.
4: In Other News. Welcome back to the In Other News segment of Jumping Off the Ivory Tower. For any new listeners, this segment is all about summarizing news stories in the world of access to justice. Here are some important updates that have happened since our last episode. Our first story is about the Law Society of Ontario. As some of our members might have heard, the Law Society had an important meeting on February 27th. In the lead-up to that meeting, there was much attention on social media about two motions that would seek to censor and remove the Law Society's equity partners from committees. Thankfully, many organizations came out against these motions, and the motions were ultimately defeated during the meeting. This meeting was also important because the LSO discussed their strategic plan for the next four years. We've linked to an article about this plan, but would note that they had four priorities. First, proportionate regulation. Second, scope of regulation. Third, competence. And fourth, quality of service and access to justice. The new plan emphasizes that regulation should be, quote, sufficient to protect the public interest and not excessive so as to become an unnecessary burden on those who are regulated." We encourage our listeners to examine this plan and think critically about the role of the law society and how to evaluate legal regulation more generally. Next up, we're looking at legal regulation in the United States. The American Bar Association recently had a heated fight over Resolution 115, a motion that would open the door to new models for legal practice in the United States. The ABA House of Delegates passed the resolution and is encouraging states to adopt regulatory innovations to expand legal services to more Americans. An important part of this debate was that the resolution provides access to justice for poor Americans. Quoting from the meeting, Resolution 115 is not just a right thing to do, the moral thing to do for ourselves, for our clients, but for our profession, it's a smart thing to do, unquote. We've linked to two articles about this resolution. The first was written leading up to the vote on February 17th, and the second discusses the results. We encourage our readers to read both. We're excited to see the eventual impacts of this resolution, and would be curious to see if it reignites similar debates across Canada. For our last announcement, in case you missed it, there was an excellent article published in The Star. It outlines the story of how NSRLP got started, its initiatives over the years, and our new funding campaign with the hashtag #JusticeForAll. We encourage you all to read and share this article as widely as you can. As we embark on our goal to ensure the financial stability of NSRLP, it's important that people realize the value of our organization. As we mentioned at the end of our last episode as well, we are also still looking for more champions people who can speak up about the NSRLP, the access to justice crisis, and even make suggestions for potential funding partnerships. If you would like to help, please email representingyourself at gmail.com. Thank you all for your support. That's it for this episode of Jumping Off the Ivory Tower. Join us next episode for a conversation with Andrew Pilliar, Director of NSRLP West.